having me back again. It's a privilege always to share God's word with God's people, uh, no matter the circumstances. So I would encourage you to keep uh, Pastor Tom and Sarah and their family in prayer as she's recovering uh, from COVID. Uh, May the Lord bring healing to them. Amen. We're going to look at Matthew uh, chapter 17, continuing where Pastor Tom uh, ended last week. Uh, Last week, I didn't listen to Tom's sermon. Uh, however, um, I, I'm sure in preaching on the transfiguration, he shared with you how Jesus' inner circle had this, uh, there's no more come to Jesus moment than one being in the presence of the Lord. And then two, seeing God on high, the Father, proclaiming his son's glory and unveiling it for his followers in a unique way as we see in the transfiguration and now we're moving in uh, or through Matthew's gospel his account of the life of Jesus and we come to a point in where these disciples uh, John Peter and um, excuse me uh, John Peter and James come down from the mountain and are approached by a group of people Uh, We're going to look at today the power and danger of faith, the power of faith in Christ and the danger of lacking faith in Christ. Faith. Um, If you know me at all, you know I am an avid hockey fan. I'm a lifelong Boston Bruins fan. And and last night and after the last three and a half years, my, my son and I were season ticket members of the Carolina Hurricanes, having lived uh, just outside of Raleigh for the last three and a half years. And it was amazing. It was wonderful to be able to see a couple times a week uh, world-class athletes um, play their sport. So the last uh, couple of weeks have been kind of a division in our house. My son, who's only 10, has been rooting for the Carolina Hurricanes. Don't hold it against him. And myself, rooting for the Bruins, and, and my son told me there is no chance the Bruins are going to win this thing. And there was a moment where I lacked faith. After game two, and the Bruins were shellacked two games in a row down in Raleigh. And then they came back to Boston, of course, and some of you might know the story. They won two games in a row. One convincingly went back to Raleigh, lost in Raleigh, came back to Boston, killed the Canes in, uh, in Boston, and then last night, I thought we were going to see a magnificent comeback. They were down three goals to one. And with 40 seconds left in the game, uh, Pasta, David Pasternak, is able to slap a one-timer into the back of the net. And now it's 3-2, and I had in the back of my mind the idea that the the Bruins could come back the same way they came back in 2013 against the Toronto Maple Leafs in a Game 7. But unfortunately, that is not the case. And now I can go back to being a Carolina Hurricanes fan once once the wounds kind of heal. I had faith. The object of my faith were the Boston Bruins. The evidence for my faith was... Uh, previous comebacks that they had uh, multiple game sevens they had 
uh, they, they have some, some great veterans on their team who've been there before, who've gone to Stanley Cup finals, who have de- defied the odds time and again over the last 10 to 15 years. My faith was obviously misplaced. We're going to see here in today's text the power of faith that comes from God and accomplishes great things. And the danger of unbelief to reject the power of God in accomplishing our mission from God. Now, what do I mean by that? First and foremost, Christ is the object of our faith. Not the Boston Bruins, not anything else. The the object of our faith is the one in whom we worship, the one in whom we are saved by, the one who is resurrected. The evidence for that faith is, of course, we have the evidence in the Gospels. We have the evidence in his resurrection. We have the evidence in his ascension. We have the evidence in seeing the gospel and the kingdom of God expand from the first century until now and continuing to expand, defying the odds. Well, how has the kingdom of God defied the odds? Well, consider our brothers and sisters in China who meet in house churches under the punishment of imprisonment. But yet, that is one of a few of of the fastest growing places for the church in the world. The same can be said for Iran and in other places. See, despite the odds, despite oppression from the government and other individuals, the gospel continues to be proclaimed and the kingdom of God continues to expand. The object of their faith is the same object as to our faith, which is Christ Jesus. And it's only by him being the object of our faith, and it's only by faith in which those things will be accomplished. So what's the danger? The danger in not believing, the danger in not having faith in Christ is that the mission would not be accomplished. However, spoiler alert, Jesus says here in Matthew that the the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. So we know the mission has been accomplished and it will be accomplished despite whatever earthly circumstances happen. It's whether or not we are a part to play in the accomplishment of that mission that has been handed down to us from Christ Jesus. Let's, uh, let's pray. We'll read God's word and we'll get into it. Uh, Father God, these are your people and this is your word. I ask that by your Holy Spirit, we would hear your word with joy in gladness, that we would be encouraged as much as we are admonished, and that by your Holy Spirit, our eyes would be opened, as well as our ears, that our hearts would be pricked, but we would be encouraged to know that you love us so. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Somebody reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the words will be on uh, the back screen. Matthew records this. When, when they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls in the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving in perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? How, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it 
came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And they were deeply distressed. And that is the word of the Lord. There are two other accounts of, of this pericope or this scene in the Gospels. One is found in Luke's Gospel, the other in Mark. There are more similarities between Luke and Matthew. Uh, Mark has some distinctive qualities to it in which Mark's uh, purpose in sharing the story is, is really to, to, to focus in on the miracle that is Jesus casting out the demon. The focus here in Matthew is really to unveil faith and the importance of faith in the Christian life and to Christ's disciples. The Gospels, some of you might know, there are three synoptic Gospels is what we call them, and they pretty much go, uh, they share 80 to 90% of the same content, but from a different perspective. Each author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write, wrote down the account of Christ, what he said, what he did, and the progression of his ministry. And as one commentator puts it, the reason we have these Gospels, for, for one, is that we can hear them as a chorus. It's a three-part harmony, or a four-part harmony if you include John, which we should. And you can see all that God intends to teach through the life of Christ by hearing these four Gospels. You want to understand them individually as well as collectively, because individually, you can hear what God intends to impart to you through the wisdom of the author, but also you can hear the, the, the unity or the chorus, the, 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 be the beauty of God's word in unison sung together. So we see in this story, when we look at Mark, that the boy most likely had some form of epilepsy. Uh, and this epilepsy at that time was brought on by this demon, which, which Jesus rebukes and casts out. Here in the first few verses, 15 through 18, we see the power of God is demonstrated by Jesus. The disciples were unable to heal the boy. Uh, the, this man comes. Just imagine, imagine most of us here are parents, or maybe you've, if you're not a parent, you at least have some parents, or you used to have some parents. And you understand the, the bond and the love that is shared between a parent and a child, a child and their parents. And if your child is sick, you would do anything you could to take that sickness on yourself, wouldn't you? I remember uh, one time, my daughter, this was several years ago now, she was just a baby. And uh, she had a fever. And we were young parents, my wife and I. And as young parents, you do things that older parents would know you should not do that thing, right? And uh, my daughter had a fever. My wife and I thought it was a good idea to put her in a bathtub. And then putting her in the bathtub, maybe that would cool her down. But apparently that was not the right thing to do for her age because it caused some kind of seizure. I, I forget the exact terminology. 
And, and in causing that seizure, I mean, we're freaking out. I mean, she's like two years old. I mean, I might have been 24, 25 at the time. My wife is four years younger than me, so she's like 20, 21. So imagine like a 21-year-old woman having a baby, and all of a sudden your baby's having some form of, of a seizure. You're going to be gravely concerned, wouldn't you? And you'd be, you'd be begging God, God, don't do this to my child. Do this to me. I can handle the pain. I can have some kind of understanding what's going on. But a two-year-old child would have no idea. Well, thankfully, it was just oh, kind of a one-off incident. The doctor told us and everything was fine. No long-term effects or anything like that. But you can, you can understand that if you ever have, and every parent's going to have a moment in which they see their children go through something terrible, and they're going to wish that that terrible thing was happening to them rather than their child. And we see with this man, I mean, I can just imagine him coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord, help my son. Please, I will do anything. I will, it's almost like those, like last night, I'm praying, God, allow the Bruins to come back. Please, I will do anything that you ask of me. No, this is a little bit more serious. This man coming and begging for his son's life. He's being tossed to and fro from the water into the fire. He has no control over his body. Lord, can you help my son? And then he drops the dime on the disciples, right? He drops the dime and says, Lord, your disciples, they're just not cutting it. They tried to exercise this demon. They tried healing my son. They just couldn't cut the mustard. They couldn't accomplish it. And Jesus responds. Jesus responds and he has some harsh words. He says, you unbelieving in perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Now, now I imagine this rebuke, and in my study, this rebuke was not directed to the father. In fact, we see in the ministry of Jesus, when people came earnestly and humbly to Christ, what was his response? It was to respond with compassion and love. In fact, most of his, what I would say, terse words or, or, or his his words of rebuke were often directed towards those who should have known better, who should have understood. The religious leaders of the time who oppressed many of the people, he spoke uh, very strong words to them. And to his disciples here, and he, and he really says, when he says all generations, he's not speaking only of his disciples, he's speaking of the majority of people who are alive at that time. This perverse generation, how must... Uh, how long must I be with you? This isn't Jesus saying, well, I don't know how much time I have left here on earth. We see in the next passage, he says, listen, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die and I'll be raised. But he's speaking kind of out of his humanity. Say, like, like, like how long do I get to put up with this thing? Maybe you have a job and you have some, maybe you've got some coworkers or a boss or maybe you're an employer and you've got some employees and we know how hard it is to get employees nowadays, right? How hard it is to find workers. And you, and you might be thinking, like, how long do I get to put up with this? How it's just a turn of phrase. It's something that we might say. So he's speaking this kind of rebuke to the generation. How long do I get to put up? Like, 
I've been here now doing this thing for like three years. I've been, I've been, I've been living here on earth as the incarnate God, as, as, as the God-man, the Son of Man, Son of God, here on earth. And I've had to put up with just a lack of faith, a lack of trust, and, and, and really a trust in ourselves rather than in God. How long must I do it? And then he, of course, turns to this man, turns to the boy, and he heals him. Just imagine, like you're seeing Jesus, and he goes, man, how long do I get to put up with my disciples? Like, how do you not get this? Back like seven chapters ago, right? Jesus is not thinking in that line. It's like, I'm thinking seven chapters ago, but Jesus isn't thinking that way. But, it's, but seven chapters ago, I told you you could do this. I told you you could heal people. I told you you could cast out demons in my name. How long do I got to put up with this stuff? You can do this. I've commanded you. Demon, get out of that boy now. Kick rocks. Think of the joy that must have come over this man and his son. Because I'm thinking, if I'm this man and this son, and I'm hearing Jesus talk this stuff, I'm going, man, we are. I don't know what's going to happen today, buddy. But this ain't looking good, right? And then he turns back with love and compassion. Demon, get out of this boy. You have no home here. You have no place. We see this isn't the first time that Jesus has cast demons out, is it? It's not the first time that Jesus has healed. In fact, these disciples, the people, not just the big three, but the whole band of 12 in the 72, they have seen Jesus heal people. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. He's cast out demons into pigs, and then the pigs run off a cliff. Now, down in North Carolina, we would call that a barbecue. What can often happen is that cynicism infects our hearts, our minds, and souls without us ever realizing it. We become cynical. We think, well, this can't happen to me. We might see somebody else do something, or we might read about it in the scriptures and go, well, listen, that, that, that's, that's for the folks in the first century. Or if we read something in the Old Testament, well, that, 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 was, that was for them. That could never happen to me. Like, I couldn't really be Paul and be thrown in jail and sing songs and hymns and, and, and be reciting scripture and people coming to faith. That certainly can't happen to me. And I'm just some ordinary person. We become cynical. We... we aren't quite assured by ourselves that God will do a miracle, that he will, by his power, bring forth what he's promised. So we grow cynical. We grow cynical, I think, because our faith is no longer placed, or the object of our faith is no longer Christ, but our own abilities our own capabilities, our own situations. Jesus should be the object of our faith and trust in all that we do. He's not only our example, he's our savior. He's not only our savior, but our Lord and our king. Now, looking to verses 19 through 21, we see the danger of unbelief is demonstrated by the disciples' lack of faith. There are two uh, kind of 
um, uh, what's the term I'm trying to think of? The, the term, talking about the mustard seed and the mountain. These are kind of two parables that were commonplace in the first century. Even before the first century, we see Isaiah uh, talk about uh, the importance of mountains and mountains being moved by the power of God. But these were two ideas that would have been common in the first century when Jesus is, is sharing this story. And he's saying, listen, all you need is faith, small enough for a mustard seed. There was no seed known in the ancient world smaller than that of a mustard seed. There was no smaller seed. So when he's talking about a mustard seed, he's talking about the, the tiniest of tiny possible seeds. The tiniest amount of faith would see a mountain. If you called out to a mountain, move from here to there, it would move. Now is Jesus saying, listen, you can go and move the Andes if you want. I mean, as Lewis and Clark are moving westward to the west coast, they could have simply, I mean, if they were believers in Jesus Christ and they had the amount of faith as small as a mustard seed, they, they could have just, you know, moved the mountain. That's not what he's saying here. Again, he's using a turn of phrase. He's using common parlance at the time. It's kind of like if I said, man, it's raining cats and dogs outside. Nobody here would expect to see cats and dogs outside, would you? At least not raining from the heavens. Um, I, I, my son asked me if I would buy him a Tesla. Um, now, my son is fascinated with cars. I'm not so much. But he watches these YouTube videos and all this stuff. Now, my son, I don't think, understands how much money a Tesla costs. Uh, I had a friend that I played hockey with down in North Carolina. He had a Tesla. And my son overheard the conversation about, oh, well, the reason I can afford a Tesla is because I pay so much. What I would be paying in a car payment, I save in gas money. So really, it works out well. So my son's convinced and continues to try to convince me, Dad, you'll save money in gas. And that will pay for the Tesla. And I have said to him, I will buy a Tesla at the price that they cost now when pigs fly. Now my son, my son has some precious prayers. Precious prayers. He often prays at dinner time and he'll, you can hear him through the walls praying at bedtime. It's, it's beautiful. It warms my heart. But man, he has added a new prayer to the list. He often prays for our soldiers overseas. He prays for first responders. He prays for the lost. He prays for his family. He prays for all kinds of stuff. And now he is praying for pigs to finally fly so that dad will get a Tesla for him, not even for dad. It's kind of the same idea here. He's using this, this, this turn of phrase that would have been common in the first century. And what he's saying is that the impossible is made possible by the power of God when faith that has been given to them according to Ephesians 2, when the faith given to God's people is appropriated rightly. So what does that mean? Well, to appropriate something means that you already have something, but you're not accessing it, you're not using it. So if... If you needed $100, 
and you had $100 in the bank to, to do something, to appropriate that money is to take that money out of the bank and put it to the need that you have. So you don't need another $100, you have the $100 that you have. You just need to access it and appropriate it, put it towards the, the item or items that you need that $100 for. You and I have been given faith by the Holy Spirit. So, so think about this, this is a little bit of tr Trinitarian theology. The Father, since before the foundation of the world, has called you his. You have been, when someone asked, well, when you were saved, you could say, before the foundation of the world. Amen? You could say, you could say at the cross of Calvary, or on Calvary, when Jesus Christ died, and you could say that was the moment in which you were saved, and you would be correct. Amen? But you could also say, the moment in which the Holy Spirit removed the scales from my eyes and turned my heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that God gave me faith, and that faith caused me to believe in the risen Son of, uh, of God. The faith we have been, been given. Jesus isn't talking about we need a certain amount of faith. He's saying, saying even the smallest drop of faith is enough for God's people. But is faith rightly ordered and rightly appropriated? Is the right object of our faith Christ? Or is the object of your faith yourself? Is the object of your faith in others? See, many commentators actually suggest that the problem with the disciples is they, that they believe they were given this gift of healing. And that just based on who they were, not based on who they believed in and followed, but based on who they were, they could now heal. Not in the name of Jesus, but in the name of themselves. It reminds me of the story in Acts of Simon the magician. So, so Simon came to believe in Christ Jesus. He was a sorcerer, as, as the CSB puts it. He was a sorcerer who heard Philip proclaim the gospel. He believed and then he came to the disciples and said, hey, how much money do I need? How much money do I need to give you to purchase the Holy Spirit? And then the disciples rebuked him. They're like, listen, you are, this is, this is a grave sin in which you've committed. You have sought to purchase the favor of God. And the beautiful thing about this story is that Simon hears this rebuke from the disciples, and what does he do? He repents. He, he grieves once he realizes what he just did in trying to purchase the Holy Spirit. I mean, Simon's a sorcerer. He's known all around town. The way he makes his money is by doing essentially magic tricks and, and, and doing all kinds of what, what would have been considered secular healing at that time. So, of course, he wants the Holy Spirit so that he would have even more power. But once he realizes the, grievous, the grievousness or the seriousness of his sin, he comes. He doesn't, like, puff up his chest and go, well, who are you to tell me that I can't pay for the Holy Spirit? And say, listen, I, I need a new pair of shoes. I need to buy another jet. He, he goes to the disciples and, and seriously prays and repents of his sin. 
The problem with the disciples and their inability to heal this young boy was that they sought to rely on their own strength, their own power, and they themselves became the object of their own faith. See, when we have faith, when Christ is the object of our faith, the seemingly impossible, the seemingly impossible becomes possible. And the impossible would later become possible and achieved by God's people as they proclaimed the gospel. And millions of people came to faith in the first few centuries of the church. You're talking about the gospel going from the kingdom of God, going from 12 disciples, 72 disciples, to a few thousand disciples at Pentecost. And it's expanding from there. And it continues to expand. We often think of the, the, the Christian faith of the kingdom of God has come to an end to the point in which we are here in the 21st century. But the kingdom of God keeps growing. It keeps growing and growing. Even as society becomes more secular, the church continues to grow. More people move into our country. More people come to faith. Many of them are bringing the Christian faith with them. In fact, I was listening to a podcast on my way in uh, that, that was really talking about some interesting stuff about the black church and, and how Africans, um, particularly in Ethiopia, they have the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, how, how that church, many, many consider that Africans only came to faith because they came on slave ships, but in fact, the Ethiopian church predates the Reformation. The Reformation was in the 1500s. The gospel continues to grow. People come from all around the world to, to, to migrate to North America, to Europe, to other parts of the world, oftentimes bringing the gospel with them. But even so, we are called to share the gospel here, right here in uh, North Situate. We're called to share it in Rhode Island and to New England and to all of North America. We're called to go and make disciples everywhere that we go, knowing that we might be chastised, knowing that people might look at us as crazy or, or, or just superstitious or whatever it might be. They, they might think that we're simpletons, that we're dumb, that we're stupid. They might think that we just have a low view of science or this or that. Some of the most brilliant Christian thinkers are those who are scientists. But even though the world might chastise you and I, may, even though they might persecute those Christians who are across the world in Iran, in, in Asia, and in other places, the gospel continues to grow. People continue to come to believe the impossible is being made possible not because we sit in strategy sessions, not because we are wise, but because we have faith in Christ and what he has accomplished and will accomplish. Verses 22 to 23 teach us that God's power is demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. This is the second prediction of Christ's death, and it demonstrates the importance of the death of Jesus. And Jesus assures his disciples that he will be raised. Like, listen, I'm going to die, and it's really important that I'm going to die. And of course, there's the famous scene of Peter going like, no, Jesus, you're certainly not going to die. And he looks at Peter and is like, dude, who are you to tell me anything? 
right? Paraphrasing, of course, their standard version. He looks at Peter and says, get behind me. Say, you have no idea what I've been called to yet, but you'll get it. You will understand. And even in, even when he tells Peter, listen, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no way, Jose. Jesus says, no, you'll do it. And then when he does it and Jesus is raised from the dead, he comes back to Peter. And what does he tell Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, of course I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, Jesus, I just told you. Feed my sheep then. Because even those who lack faith, even those who lack belief in Christ, even those, when we go astray, when we go to the left or to the right, Jesus calls us back to himself. And when he brings, and he calls us back, and when we're back in his arms as though we ever left. But when we feel his warm embrace, what does he do? He restores us. Not that we've ever lost what he's given, but that we come to a place of realization and appropriation of what he's already done. The resurrection is incredibly important. And the disciples distress. It says they are distressed. They're distressed. And this feeling, it's an example of their unbelief. Three of them went on the mountaintop. Three of them went on the mountaintop and saw the glory of God. And in seeing the glory of God, they came down and they heard what just happened. And they heard what Jesus said about faith, the importance of faith, and he being the object of faith. And then you would think that, that James, John, and Peter might look at the other ones and go, listen, Jesus is saying he's going to die, but he's saying that he's going to be raised We got this because our God got this. But instead, their disposition is one of distress. It's a reminder how quickly that cynicism can creep into our hearts. We serve a God who has created all things out of nothing. We serve a God who who made us out of breath, in dust. We serve a God who has redeemed us by sending his son to die in our stead. We serve a God who has raised that same son. And we serve a God who indwells us by the Holy Spirit. When you look at all that, we have no reason to distress. Because no matter what happens in this life, we know that all things happen according to the glory of God, according to his plan. Christ's death and resurrection are the ultimate demonstration of God's power. And they're central to why we believe. So you might look in your own life and go, man, my marriage is a disaster. My relationship with my kids or my parents is a disaster. My life has been, become overwhelmed with addiction or cynicism or stress, or anxiety, whatever it might be. You might look at your own church and go, man, I don't know how we're going to get past this because as North Situate and Rhode Island gets more secular, there are going to be less people who come to our church. You might look and say, where has my hope gone? Friends, I say this as your brother in Christ. Your hope, your hope is in Christ. 
And although at times those relationships with your parents or your spouse, your battles with maybe addiction or mental health, financial stress, whatever it might be, there are things that are going to come to pass that they are going to be difficult. God does not promise us an easy life. He calls us to die to self. He calls us to carry our cross. He calls us to follow our Lord. And when Jesus says, follow me, and he also tells his disciples that if they hated your master, what does that mean for you? Jesus did not have an easy and privileged life himself. So in being disciples of Jesus, we know that our lives are not to be marked by how easy it is. But our lives are marked by Christ. So when you look in the mirror, you might see all kinds of things. I see my hairline receding. My son reminds me of the growing bald spot at the back of my head. My beard is starting to go from red to white. I put on a few more pounds. My bones have begun to ache a little bit more. I am seeing my body perish. Things change. But I know this, that when God sees me, he sees Christ. He sees one who's being conformed to the image of his son, according to Romans 8. He sees one who has been bought and purchased by the blood of his son Jesus. He sees me clothed with Christ's righteousness. Same goes for you. When you look in the mirror, you might see the same bleak picture that I see. But understand this, that when God sees you, he sees you clothed with his son's righteousness. It's just whether or not that righteousness is being appropriated in your life. So when you have a spouse that's hard to get along with, do you see them as Christ sees them? When you go and, and pray to the Lord, God, I don't know why I am so anxious. I don't know why I am so depressed. And trust me, I've dealt with anxiety and depression that is categorized as from PTSD from my time in the army. Like these are prayers that I have all the time. God, why is this happening to me? Understand this, that no matter your mental state now, your physical state now, God has promised you that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no anxiety. There will be no depression. There will be no angst between spouses or children or friends and family. There will be only worship of King Jesus. When we properly understand Christ, who he is, and the faith we're called to have in him, not the amount of faith, but him being the object of our faith, we can then forgive our spouse. We can then forgive those around us. We can then reflect even on our own imperfections and recognize our need for forgiveness, seeking first the forgiveness of our Lord. And, and understand this, when you seek forgiveness from God, When you seek forgiveness 
from God. There are three words that should play in the back of your head. You are forgiven. You're not forgiven because of your righteousness. You're forgiven because Christ has died for you. And then as a spouse or a parent or, 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 or a child or whatever role you might play, understand this, that when others seek forgiveness from you, that we are to be as gracious as our Lord. Those who have been forgiven much, those who have experienced much mercy will be those who first extend that mercy to others. There are three things. I know I'm going long. That's just who I am. I'm sorry. There are three big takeaways that I want you to have from today's message. First, unbelief is our lack of trust in God to do great things. And all of us have some level of unbelief in our lives. We might not believe that these dry bones have life from Ezekiel. We might not believe that God can bring healing in our lives or in our church or community. We might not believe these things. We might not believe in, in our own self-worth. But what we often need to realize is that when, when Christ is the object of our faith, he's also the one who dictates our worth. And how worthy are you? So much so that he came to die for you. How worthy are you? So much so that he has imparted his righteousness to you. So much so that the Father even knew your name from the moment you were in the womb. Where in your life is there unbelief? Second, faith is our reliance upon God. Faith in the gospel of Matthew is often viewed in three ways. Commitment to Christ, obedience to Christ, and dependence upon Christ. Because if you believe in Christ, you will be committed to Christ. If you believe in Christ and he's the object of your faith, you will be obedient to what he teaches. And when you lack obedience, what do you do? You do what Simon did. And you repent. And you're forgiven. And you move on. And lastly, you depend on Christ. You depend on him day in and day out. Paul talks about praying without ceasing. I think he would also talk about, I think he would also share with you we need to depend on Christ without ceasing. Depend on him in the morning and at the night and everywhere in between. Depend on him like my son depends on pigs eventually flying. So in what ways in your life right now are you relying upon God? reflected last night. We got married. She was 19. I was 23. I was in the army. We knew each other for only a couple of months when we got married. And this year, I think we'll be celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary. We, uh, we were reflecting last night on friends and family whose marriages are literally falling apart. It breaks my heart. Falling apart. Like we look and go, we literally have no one else who has a stable marriage. And if you looked at our, like how we got married compared to how everybody else got married, you would have thought we would have been the first ones to fall apart. And if my son or my daughter comes to me and says, Dad, I just, 
met this guy or gal and we're going to get married and they've only known each other for two months, I would lock them in the house and tell them, that, no, don't do that. But by the Lord's grace and mercy, here we are 12 years later. I love my wife more now than I did yesterday or 12 years ago. And I think she would say the same, unless the burns are on. Then she gets no attention. But it was our reliance upon God that saw us overcome our own deficiencies. At 19, at 23, you're dumb. You're selfish. You know nothing. I'm 34 and still know nothing. It was our reliance upon God, our dependence upon him, our faith in Christ Jesus that saw us overcome all kinds of obstacles. Your own obstacles in your own lives depend on Christ. Uh, your elders are... Are you, are, you guys, are you guys elders or deacons? Deacons, okay. Our churches are often different as to what they call the, the spiritual leaders of the church. We were talking, and I was expressing my own concern for those who are elderly on a fixed income, whatever it might be, and how, how much inflation has impacted the price of oil and all this other stuff, and how I just bought my first 150 gallons since moving back from North Carolina. I'm thinking about moving back down south. And I, and I look at that and go, like, all of us are going through some kind of financial hardship right now. And, and maybe the hardship is, is a little less hard, or, or we want to downplay it. So maybe you're used to taking a vacation every summer. We used to vacation up in Old Orchard Beach with all the French Canadians. Um, maybe you can't afford that. Maybe you can't afford groceries. Maybe you can't afford to pay your car note or your house note, whatever it might be. Maybe you're trying to figure out, maybe you're grateful that school's about to end because you're struggling to pay for school supplies for your kids, whatever it might be. Now, God might not bless you financially. I'm not a prosperity preacher. But what he does is when we depend upon him, he assures us that everything will be okay, that all things are working according to his plan into his glory. So what does that look like? What does that look like? What, what might he be calling you to do? Well, surely there could be ways in which God might be calling you to be blessed or bless others uh, in all kinds of different ways. But it's our reliance upon God that will see us overcome the obstacles in our lives. As I shared earlier, the podcast I was listening to, one of the things that is, um, that is credited to uh, African slaves overcoming slavery when it was abolished was their faith. There are hymns and stories still written that, that, that we have record of of slaves in the 1700s writing down. Now, it was illegal if you had a slave, it was illegal for that slave to be educated. But many of these slaves were copying the text of Scripture to share with other congregations. Many of them writing down their own hymns and poems and whatever so that they might sing them together. It was their dependence upon God that saw them overcome one of the greatest tragedies known to man. Lastly, faith is trusting in God to do great things. You might not be the one to do great things. 
It is the God in which you believe in, who is the object of your faith, that accomplishes that which is great. What has God done in your life to establish that trust? Not only has he created all things, not only does he sustain everything by his very power, not only has he given you a savior, but he's also in your life done something to cause you to trust him as if the resurrection wasn't enough. He's, you maybe have seen him sustain you in times of great trouble or turmoil. Maybe you've seen, as Ezekiel says, dry bones come alive, whether it be in this church or another church. Whatever it might be, God continues to sustain his people according to his power into his glory. So reflect as you want to grow in your faith and trust in Christ, remember those things that he has already done for you. Remember those things that he has brought you through. I think, um, I think Tom has shared with me that uh, you guys have had my good friend Justin Nash come down or come up, right? You guys have gone through some of his church health, church revitalization stuff. My church, when I was in North Carolina, went through it. Um, Justin is incredibly smart, doesn't give himself enough credit. Um, but he and I talk a lot. We talk quite often about church health and, and all, all kinds of churches, whether, um, you know, Tom doesn't share all that much about, about you guys. Uh, apparently he doesn't love you all that much. But I, I've been, the last church I was a part of, not, not the church in North Carolina, but the church before that, you know, there was a sense of, of many people, they were seeing other churches that were having success, more people uh, coming to know Jesus or transferring into their church or whatever it might be. And, and, and they, there were some who were paralyzed by fear that this would, that they, were, they became cynical. This could never happen with us. I knew of a, a little church where I literally did just come from, not my church, but another church. They were down to five people. Five people. They had half a million dollars in the bank. I mean, that's a lot of money. I don't know how much you have in the bank, but to me, half a million bucks, they, whew, that's a lot of money. And they decided they had to make a choice. Five people, they were either going to shut down and donate their money to, to uh, their local denomination, or they were going to rebuild the parking lot because, I mean, the parking lot was in terrible condition, or they recognized that there was a significant need with drug addiction in their community. And they said, man, maybe God is calling us. Like, it's only the five of us, so all the naysayers are dead. Like, everybody, everybody who just tells you, hey, this is why we can't do it, they're either dead or they're gone. So we really have an opportunity here. What is God calling us to do? And there was a sense among those five people, and this was about seven years ago, those five people said, I believe God is calling us to care for those who are in drug addiction in our community. So they poured that $500,000 to establish, get this, halfway houses for those who are coming out of rehabs. They established a women's house that is like in the community. No one knows where it is. It's, kind of, you know, it's for those who are women who've been beat and abused and, and all that. So they put them in these homes so that they could be safe and help get help help them get care and, 
and all that. They poured their $500,000 into those things, bringing an additional minister on staff who is experienced in counseling with drug addiction and with physical abuse. And God has blessed that church in innumerable ways. Even if that church had not grown to the size it is now, it's over 1,000 people in seven years. We're not talking about a church that, you know, has got the light show and the, what I like to call the, the Holy Spirit fog machine. That, like, they didn't attract people by putting on the rock concert. They literally just served their community sacrificially. They literally just said, like, we got half a million dollars. How can we bless our community with this to the glory of God? Now, like I said, I don't know how much money you have in the bank. Most churches, it's not half a million dollars. Whatever it might be, that church, their trust wasn't in the $500,000. Do you get it? What was their trust in? That the Lord would accomplish the impossible and make it possible. Because there is, I, I've worked with folks who have been abused. I've worked with folks who, who have been in addiction, who have had mental health issues. There is no place that is seemingly more impossible to come out of than in one of those places. But with Christ and in Christ, the impossible is made possible. Let's pray. Father, your glory fills the heavens and the earth. In the earth, and, and, and your glory fills our hearts. I ask that for, for me and, and for those who are here, that you would continue to sustain us by your power, that you would continue to be the object of our faith, and that, Father, I mean, th- those times that we go left or to the right, th- those moments in that we rely on ourselves or others over and against our reliance and dependence upon Christ. Would you rebuke us? Would you correct us? Would you bring us close? And then we re- when we repent, may you look at us the same way you look at us right now with love and care and mercy because you are the God who welcomes the downtrodden. You're the God who welcomes the sojourner. You're the God who saves not according to what those people can do for him, but according to his own glory and own mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In lieu of a song, I uh, was told that we're going to close with a prayer. I'm going to share with you the same uh, prayer and blessing that I have always shared with the churches that I've pastored. So if you will, will you stand with me? This comes out of number six, and this was a blessing, you might remember. I don't know if Tom does this or not, but this is a blessing that God handed to Moses, handed to Aaron to bless the people of Israel, God's people. And just as Israel were God's people then, we are God's people today. So he says, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that Reverend Eric Reynolds offered to Rockland Community Church. 
Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.